Hello, you're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, the podcast that brings you UCL's latest research and analysis on the pandemic. I'm Vivian Parry, a writer, broadcaster, proud UCL alumna, and the person lucky enough to be the host of this award-winning podcast. This week's episode is all about the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. It's been raising lots of questions recently. Is it causing blood clots? Is it safe? Who should it be given to? It should be no surprise to any of our regular listeners that the experts who can give us the answers to all these questions are to be found at UCL. So let me introduce you to them. First up, Brownie Franklin, who's Professor of Medication Safety in the UCL School of Pharmacy. Brownie has over two decades of experience researching medication safety and has quite literally written a textbook on it. Her research has covered prescription, dispensation and admin errors and how to study and reduce them. And I'm also joined by Professor Marie Scully, a professor of hemostasis and thrombosis. I want to be a professor of hemostasis and thrombosis. And she's also a consultant hematologist at UCLH. It was thanks to Marie's background and expertise in blood clots that we were first alerted to them being a rare side effect of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. So let me turn to Bryony firstly. Let's have a bit of an understanding of the nature of side effects. How do we know that they're there, that they are caused by whatever it is we're taking? And how common do they have to be to be considered a problem? Oh, lots of uh, big questions there. I mean, everything we do in life has side effects. There are risks and benefits of everything. So whether we're crossing the road, um, taking a painkiller, taking a car journey, having a drink, all of these things that we do have risks and benefits. And most of them will have consequences or side effects. So, of course, it's exactly the same for medicines. So in terms of how we find out what side effects a medicine has, they'll often first come to light in clinical trials once medicines are being tested, well, initially in healthy volunteers and then in patients. But clinical trials will usually involve numbers in the thousands of people. And for many rare side effects, they won't come to light until after a medicine or vaccine is being used in much, much greater numbers. Because if something is very rare, then a clinical trial in a few thousand people or even tens of thousands is unlikely to pick it up. Now, what do we mean by rare? Ah, well, the these words are often used, aren't they? So you might see if you take the package insert for a medicine, something's described as very common or common or rare or very rare. And until fairly recently, they were words that were just used, which of course raises all sorts of uh, issues because some people will interpret these words in very different ways. But there are a fairly standard set of numbers that go with those words. So if something is a rare side effect, it happens somewhere between one in a thousand and one in 10,000 people. If something is very rare, then it's less often than one in 10,000, for example. If something is very common, then it affects more than one in 10 people. And some of the side effects that we've already seen with AstraZeneca are the kind of ones that we expect with vaccines. You know, there's the sore arms and these adenovirus mediated vaccines seem to be particularly what's called reactogenic. In other words, you have a, you know, like yellow fever or something, you have a particularly sore arm afterwards. 
Yeah, that's right. In fact, with the other vaccines too, the um, mRNA vaccines as well, it's actually either common or very common to have a sore arm, to feel a bit feverish afterwards, to, you know, really just feel a bit fluey for perhaps 24, 48 hours afterwards. These things are fairly common, as you say, with all vaccines. And in some ways, it's it's the nature of how it works. It's going to affect your immune system and often results in some side effects of those types. So let me turn now to blood clots. So Marie, tell me about the patient you met in March who had a blood clot because of the vaccine. What alarm bells were set ringing for you and why did you think this is vaccine caused? So initially, I tried to ignore the fact that she'd had a vaccine within the last two weeks. It was her first AstraZeneca one. She presented with blood clots in the head and a low platelet count. And blood clots in the head, so cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, in the main, one can find an underlying cause for it. So in about 85% of cases, there's usually a reason for it. And the low platelet count where we deal with immune-mediated thrombocytopenia, so ITP, not uncommonly and have quite a large practice, and it looked as if it was that. So we initiated treatment for the ITP, but also wanted to cover the blood clot in the head. And in the interim did some standard and also some very rare investigations to try and elucidate the underlying cause. At the same time, and it was just by chance, we did an ultrasound of her abdomen, primarily looking for the size of her spleen, which would be in relation to her query ITP, and found she had a clot in her liver, Now, that's even more uncommon than uh, the clot in the head. And that's when the alarm bells started to ring a bit more. And what age was she, Marie? 30. So very young. young. Yes, very young. There had been reports up till that point in the background of my mind that there were similar cases in Europe. But nobody had elucidated the reason for it, although they were very convinced it was related to the AZ vaccine. ITP, let's say on its own, is not an uncommon condition. We're using that word again, uncommon. It's not uncommon. And indeed, we can see it after vaccines or a viral infection. So it wouldn't necessarily be abnormal. And the count wasn't so uh, terribly low that we would be necessarily concerned. And indeed, she probably spent longer in hospital than we would normally keep someone in for. Again, reasons unknown. And then she deteriorated one week later and became very sick and needed to be moved to intensive care. And this was really becoming very abnormal for the clots and the low platelet count and the fact that we had not identified a unifying reason. And then thinking back to the European situation, they similarly described these clots in the head and the low platelet count. And there is a limited differential to that. There was no reason then to look for anti-PF4 antibodies other than it looked similar to a situation called heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, even though the patient had not received heparin pre-admission and had no medical history. And the antibodies, very surprisingly, were very positive. And that was confirmed on a second and then third patient within 24 hours. Because you said that uh, this condition can also be caused by a viral infection. Is it possible that COVID in and of itself, because, for instance, she might have had COVID when she had the vaccine, could that also be a cause? Yeah, I mean, that's a very important question. Firstly, she was PCR negative 
for COVID-19 when she came into hospital. So everybody is automatically tested these days in all hospitals. So that was verified at the referring hospital and at UCLH. Secondly, we subsequently did some more extensive testing to look at her antibodies, COVID-19 antibodies, so whether she had previous infection or whether they were in keeping with her recent vaccination and she had no evidence of a previous infection and did have antibodies developed to COVID-19 following vaccination. So it was clear that she had not had preceding COVID-19. And that is important because, of course, there's been a lot of discussion during the primary and secondary pandemic phases in different countries about the risk of blood clots. But these are not the type of blood clots that one would see in acute, severe COVID-19 infection. They're quite different. So these are not your regular blood clots, which are really quite common. They're not your clots that you would see with COVID-19 infection, but they're something really quite different. And they're also particularly affecting younger people and younger women, as I understand it. So in Europe, yes. In Europe, they had a higher incidence in young women Uh, many of whom were taking oral contraceptive. But their rollout, their vaccine rollout, was completely opposite to the UK. So we vaccinated our elderly population first with the AZ, and obviously it's decreasing down the age groups now per decade. Whereas in, for example, Norway and Denmark and Germany, a lot of their healthcare workers received AstraZeneca. That was their first vaccine. So it was a different population. In the UK, we've obviously been collecting and reviewing all the cases clinically, and the split's pretty 50-50. So that's fascinating. And come to you, Brianie, because when you see these things coming up, of course, you start to look for them more. And then does it become more difficult to, to decide how they've been caused? I think it becomes different because a lot of the data that we use for understanding how often and what side effects occur once a drug is being used in the general population is based on something called the yellow card reporting system. Reporting a yellow card relies on somebody and it could be the person who's received a vaccine or it could be one of the healthcare professionals who is um, involved with their care. It involves somebody completing a yellow card, which is usually done. It's not a piece of paper anymore. It's done on on the computer. But obviously, that person has to think to do a yellow card, to decide that something meets the criteria for doing a yellow card and has to actually report one. And I think, you know, we all have our own psychologies about in what situations you might decide to complete a yellow card. And in general, once you're sensitised to something, so once you're thinking, oh, this might be important, you're probably more likely to do it. But that's probably a good thing because it's more likely that we'll learn and collect more data. And yellow card reporting will obviously have some under-reporting where somebody either doesn't think to complete one or doesn't realise they should or means to and then forgets, you know, all of the things that happens to us as humans. But it also might mean some over-reporting if things actually weren't linked to the vaccine. But in general, the analysis that's done will take into account some of those things. So it's really important that these cards are completed so that we can learn about the patterns of what is actually happening. And presumably, Marie, haematologists UK-wide are now actively looking for this. 
So they are reporting all the cases, correct? We review all the cases. So there are some that we have felt as a large group do not fulfil the diagnosis of VIT, vaccine-induced immune thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. But there is obviously the yellow card reporting system and the MHRA have to do their own analysis of the cases to see if they are indeed VIT or other. So we don't actively go looking for them in as much as the patients actually are very sick when they present. And that's the difference with regards to side effects that we are all used to with medications, particularly rare ones. This affects young people. It has a significant mortality and we cannot predict who it's going to affect. So it was thought maybe it affected patients that had a higher risk of forming blood clots. That does not appear to be the case. If that was the situation, then you could put a plan in place to give that group of patients another type of vaccine to reduce the incidence of this condition. And that's what makes it quite hard is to predict who it's going to affect. So $64,000 question, Marie. How does the vaccine cause the blood clot? We don't know. All we can do is summarise what we know to date. There's two parts of the vaccine in simplistic terms. One is the spike protein for which we generate antibodies to COVID-19. And the second is the delivery system. The platform like it's an adenovirus mediated. Correct. So it doesn't appear, even though the spike protein is very immunogenic, to be the cause at the moment. And we say that and feel that because all the vaccines have this spike protein. There may be some differences between them, but they all have this spike protein. And we do not see the side effect in all the vaccines. AZ is an adenoviral vector. We thought it was primarily because it was a different type. So it's from chimpanzee. Maybe that was it until there was evidence that exactly the same situation with VIT came to light with the Janssen type of vaccine, which is also adenoviral, but not chimpanzee. And presumably with the Sputnik one as well. Ah, but that's from Russia and there's very little detail about that. So it's it's likely, but we haven't been told about it. No, nobody knows. They did put out a statement last week saying it was not associated with their vaccine, so we can't really comment. Now, whether it is the adenovirus or a constituent of the vaccine in the making of the vaccine, that bit is unclear. And that's where all the efforts are currently being directed to elucidate the exact cause for this very rare syndrome. So, Brani, this is exactly the kind of side effect that not only wouldn't have been apparent in your big clinical trials, where we're talking about 10,000 people, maybe even 30,000, But it wouldn't have been apparent either in any testing. You know, this is not something that would have come up during the development of the vaccine. No, that's right. Sometimes you can predict what side effects might be likely from a given medicine or vaccine due to how it works. So, for example, something that's got, you know, opioid type structures in it, you would anticipate that it might make you drowsy, for example. But something like this, I would see as being completely unpredictable. And as we've just discussed, extremely rare. So actually very, very difficult to predict, to anticipate and to pick up really, which is why it's, I think, been so so challenging really to understand exactly what's going on. 
We've seen, Marie, a lot of different numbers attached to the risk for this. And there's obviously a different risk depending on age. But I wanted to do a bit of compare and contrast with other medicines that are responsible for thrombotic events, like the pill. And and also, uh, and I would remember when there was a huge scare about the pill and everybody came off the pill thinking, you know, that they were at terrible risk of thrombosis and then immediately became pregnant, which, of course, carries a huge risk of thrombosis in itself. So how do we do this compare and contrast? So firstly, we do need to be mindful that vaccination is the way forward. So we have to keep that in the back of our mind. Whatever happens, we have to ensure that the planet is vaccinated against this virus. With regards to the pills of brilliant analogy, and if you go back to the outcomes of all that work, essentially the oestrogen dose was too high. And even at that time, I don't think it was, well, it definitely wasn't appreciated the inherent risk of thrombosis from pregnancy. And furthermore, thrombophilia abnormalities were beginning to be identified, in particular Factor V Leiden. So it all began to fall into place and those three things, therapy was adapted so that the risk of thrombosis is minimised as much as possible. So that's what happened with the pill. We must remember with this, we're seven weeks into a new syndrome. Critically, I think we need to understand what is it It has to be something within the vaccine. It's very difficult to see that it's patient-specific related unless there's some sort of genetic polymorphism that's common to everyone, which would not be highly likely, but it is being investigated. I think critically we need to understand what is it about the vaccine delivery method and its constituents that could be aggravating and propagating a thrombotic risk. The MHRA weekly put out a report which is very helpful and last week's report in particular was very useful. So it looked at a number of parameters and one that struck particularly were the number of reports of headaches following AZ vaccination, way up and above greater than the other vaccines accepting that Moderna has only just started to to be rolled out in the UK. So there was over 61,000 yellow cards re-headache. What we don't have, for example, is the detail of when these headaches occurred. And as you've already heard from Bryony, within the first 48, 72 hours, some symptoms are not uncommon. But if patients are getting headaches after this time, it could be the kind of primary hit, and this is just an hypothesis, just thinking clinically and translationally, that you're getting aggravation. And then there may be some other second hit that ends up with patients developing bit. What we don't have are the preceding symptoms for all the patients who have fit. So there's an awful lot of work to do. So it may be hypothesis only based on no fact in patients who have extensive headaches in the first few days after vaccination maybe we should be looking more closely at them and actually a banging headache is a feature of coronavirus itself so let's now do this compare and contrast i hate the word safe because every vaccine has 
side effects. I was as regular listeners to this podcast will know on the JCVI, the Joint Committee on Vaccination, myself. And there is no vaccine that does have no side effects. It always has to be a compare and contrast. You know, how safe would I be if I got coronavirus? Well, actually, not all that safe. How safe would I be with a vaccine? Well, actually, compared to your risks of having the vaccine, much, much, much safer. So let's do a compare and contrast, Marie, first of all, with the pill. Compare and contrast the risks of thrombotic events with the vaccine with the thrombotic events of the pill. What are the numbers? Although there have been a number of reports, so we haven't got that data specifically. We've not been, you know, closely looking at that. Although the initial investigations by MHRA and EMA a couple of months ago suggest it's no higher than the background rate. So thrombosis may not be uncommon. What we're talking about is a specific type of thrombosis, which is completely different. Thrombosis from the pill can be very high, but it depends on the dose of estrogen that you're using. And that's where the problems were. But if you have something like FAT5 Leiden, you go on the pill on a long journey, you know, your risk of developing a blood clot in your leg is increasing significantly. So how does this vaccine compare to the other vaccines in terms of risk? I mean, is the Johnson & Johnson absolutely comparable or should we think about each vaccine separately? So I think we can think about the groups of vaccines with regards to mRNA, AAV. So the J&J VIT cases are absolutely comparable to the AstraZeneca ones. And that was not something that anyone had considered would happen but they have and that's during I think it's around the time of their clinical trial so although it's been suspended it's now been restarted of course the benefit with the J&J is it's just one dose the risk of developing VIT it's not common but it has a fatality that we can't ignore and the morbidity attached to it we haven't even started to address it is significant, which is why it's become more important to consider. So you've heard already about side, side effects of side effects. And in the main, people get over them or we can treat them or we can identify them. And this is different. It's completely different. We can't distinguish who's going to get it. It has a circa 30 to 50 percent mortality in a young patient. And when we do risk and benefit, of course, we need to look at the risk of mortality and morbidity from COVID-19 infection versus that from a therapy to prevent COVID-19. And in younger age groups, and I don't know the numbers for the risk of VIT in younger age groups because we don't have the denominator of the number of patients who've received it in the UK in the different ages, but the risk of dying between 20 and 30 is low from primary COVID-19 infection. And we have to be mindful of that. So it's where the, the graphs cross, as it were, between the risk of dying of COVID and the risk of dying from this particular side effect. Yeah. So, Brownie, 
you have a thought? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that makes this quite complicated is assessing these risks and benefits, because exactly as you've just been saying, the younger population are those who are less at risk of COVID. So that shifts the risk benefit ratio, particularly at times when COVID levels in the community are low. So that's the other factor that's quite complicated in weighing up the risks and benefits. If the population incidence of COVID is very high, then obviously everybody's at higher risk, including those in the 20 to 30 type of age group. So that's where the recommendation has come from, which is currently in place in the UK, that people who would be eligible for COVID vaccination who are under 30 years of age, if possible, should have one of the other vaccines at present, such as the the Pfizer vaccine, because it's all about weighing up, as you say, where these lines cross. And, And it's complex. And I think the other factor that complicates things is that you're thinking about the individual risks and benefits. So what are the risks to me if if I get COVID? What are the risks to me if I have a vaccine? But we've also got the risks to those around us. So what are the risks to the people I live with if I get COVID? And what are the risks to society? Which makes this actually quite a nuanced risk benefit assessment for everybody, really. And we're really never very good at understanding what risk means. I mean, David Spiegelhalter, who is the guru on risk, has said that for older people, there is greater risk going to the vaccine centre than there is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Probably drive, if you drive there in a car, you're probably at greater risk from that. So absolutely. And we have to put these things in perspective in terms of the risks of getting one of these blood clots. It's probably comparable to driving in a car for sort of a million miles or something. It's still extremely rare. But as Marie has been saying, the fact that it is such a serious side effect means that we do, of course, need to take it very, very seriously as something that we need to avoid. But put into overall context, you know, the risks of COVID to most of us are far, far greater than the risks of the vaccine. Was it difficult at the beginning of this, Marie, in that you don't you don't want to frighten people, but you do want to raise this as an, an issue? And there are people who are very interested in not undermining confidence in vaccines, and yet you need to make sure that this is genuinely caused by the vaccine. Of course, you're absolutely right. Clinically, we can only present what we observe. And what we have observed is a significant number of cases in the UK with a very, very similar pattern of which the mortality is significant in primarily a younger age group. They all fit the same pattern. But being responsible and understanding the criticality of vaccination has been, you know, my mantra and first statement with any discussion about this. So it was very sensitive when we found out about it. But similarly, we had to put measures in place because the treatment pathway is different. That's what the difference was and that's why it had to be announced as such but it was announced to the correct people it was announced to the regulators and the CMO and CSOs. So there's no particular diagnostic test for this yet is there? There is we do anti-PFOR antibodies. But what I mean is you can do a diagnostic test but you can't do a test which identifies which people might be at risk. No, and we found no associating factors and we have looked. Primarily people who are completely fit and well with no past medical history are coming in with this condition. So do you think that it has put people off 
getting vaccinated or do you think that isn't the case? I think people just need to be reassured. And so a lot of the questions we're getting now is, oh, I've heard about this, shall I get my second dose? Yes, because we've only had it so far in association with the first dose. Or I've had this medical condition or that medical condition, will I be at risk? No, because we have no association with other medical conditions. So we can advise people and the worried, well, if they hear we've never had it with a second dose, have your second dose. I want to finish this conversation between us by asking each of you what you would say to a 30-year-old asking you about the AstraZeneca vaccine and whether they should have it. So I think that a 30-year-old will have an option to have AZ or another type of vaccine. And that's been very clearly communicated by the regulators. With that option in place, I would go for the other vaccine. If we only had AZ, I would advise to have AstraZeneca. It's very difficult because we don't have an incidence on the risk in that age group. We do not clinically have that information because comparably having seen a year's worth of very sick, very sick patients with COVID-19, we've also seen some very sick patients with VIT who are young and whose life is going to, it has been seriously affected or they have died. So I would go with another vaccine until we're clear on the cause But if we only had one option, which we don't, we have a number of options. The important thing is to get vaccinated. Sorry, that was a very long answer. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a it's it's a nuanced thing. It's not a it's not a black and white thing, which we often think that these decisions about vaccines are black and white, but they never are. They are always shades of grey. Brani, what would you say? I mean, very similar, really. I mean, I think I'd be wanting to make sure somebody made an informed decision about, you know, what the the risks are. And of course, there's a lot of unknowns there, but trying to get your head around the figures and how rare this is in the context of COVID. But yes, exactly as Marie has said, that if somebody's eligible to have an alternative, what, why would you not? But if that meant either waiting a very long time or not being able to be vaccinated, then I would certainly go with the AstraZeneca because the primary thing has got to be to try and be vaccinated if at all possible. Thank you both very much indeed. It's a fascinating story and I still want to be a professor of thrombosis and hemostasis. <laughs> you say that now. <laughs> You've been listening to Coronavirus the Whole Story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the splendid Keris Bradley. I was joined today by Professors Bryony Franklin and Marie Scully. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, of course you would. Subscribe wherever you download your podcast or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. And don't forget to check out the new disruptive voices from UCL Grand Challenge while you're there. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities open to everyone. Hope to be with you again soon. Bye for now.